You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Acts. Here's Nate. Well, after the events of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, we saw how Paul and Barnabas made a decision or had a desire to go out again on a second large missionary journey. Uh, They wanted to visit the churches that they had previously seen established as they preached the gospel in Cyprus or on Cyprus and in Asia Minor and in parts of Galatia and Phrygia. Barnabas, of course, as we saw at the end of chapter 15, wanted to bring John Mark on the journey, but Paul did not want to take him who had betrayed them or abandoned them in their first journey. And the dissension over Mark grew so sharp that Barnabas took Mark and went his way, and Paul took Silas and went his way. And so Paul, departing with Silas, in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul is continuing to build now his missionary team, and having left Antioch, he arrives in Derby and also Lystra, places that he'd previously gone to, and he finds this young man named Timothy and recruits him to be part of his missionary team. And there are a few fascinating things that we learn about Timothy in these few short verses. First of all, it tells us that he was the the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. What that tells us is that, first of all, Timothy had a godly heritage on his mother's side. And when you read Paul's letters to Timothy, you discover that Timothy did have quite the spiritual heritage. Paul said to him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So his mom was named Eunice, his grandmother Lois, and both of them had a sincere and genuine faith that they passed down to young Timothy. Secondly, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he'd said to Timothy, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in Timothy, we get an example of the benefits of a godly parent instilling the truth of God's word into the hearts of their children. Not only that, but Timothy also had the experience of having a non-believing heritage as well. His father, in contrast to his mother, was a Greek 
who more than likely was not a convert, not a God-fearer, and not a believer. Timothy, it says, here was well spoken of throughout that region. He was a man of a good reputation, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Timothy was a man who was called by God. Timothy had, we are certain, received the call of God in his own heart personally, and in the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, we discover that the there were prophecies about his life and about his future ministry, and also that hands had been laid upon him for the work. And Paul, in inviting him to join the ministry team, circumcised him, which was fascinating. Apparently, because Timothy had a Greek father, uh, he was not required to be circumcised as a young man. And Paul began thinking about what it would be like for them to go from place to place and to try to minister to the Jew first and also to the Greek and what it would be like for you know, people to discover that Timothy was half Jewish yet non-practicing in one of the most basic elements of Judaism. So it seems that Paul asked Timothy to be circumcised for the sake of peace, not to try to justify Timothy or to sanctify Timothy, but simply to have an opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. In other words, Timothy, in doing this, was like Christ in that he laid down his rights for the sake of others. In fact, Jesus, even very specifically, with a desire to reach the entire Gentile world, submitted himself to the rites of circumcision. It says in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, Jesus saw the Gentiles, had the Gentiles as his target group, but in order to reach them, he submitted himself to Judaism, to circumcision, in order to to be able to have an audience in the Gentile world. He laid down his rights for the sake of others. And that is exactly what Timothy was doing. Now, in other places, when circumcision was tied to justification or sanctification, Paul would hold his ground and would not allow men who were his companions of ministry to be sanctified. In Galatians chapter 2, there's a story of Titus. They were pressuring him, some of the Judaizers, to be circumcised, and Paul refused. He got in that situation real quick and said, no, we're not going to allow him to be circumcised. Uh, They were trying to tie circumcision at that point to justification and sanctification, and so Paul refused at that moment. But for the sake of preaching the gospel and having an opportunity, Timothy submitted himself to circumcision, a pretty fascinating part of Timothy's life. And of course, it shows us the great devotion that this young man had to the work. He was very invested in it. Now, as they went on their way, verse 4, through the cities, they delivered to them For observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. You remember in Acts 15, the decisions that the church had made about the decision that God had made. They they came to the conclusion that 
you know, the Lord has not required Gentiles to become Jewish in their faith. And so they went throughout the world now on this second journey, proclaiming the effects of that beautiful decision. A works righteousness is not a righteousness, and they were preaching that to the churches that they'd gone through. And so the churches, verse 5, were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Uh, This is one of Luke's progress reports throughout the book of Acts, where he is announcing this beautiful you know, thing of God's grace expanding, the churches strengthened in the faith, increasing in numbers daily. Now that concludes, in Luke's mind, that next book of the book of Acts. And now we move into a new and fresh venture, where Paul is now going to take the gospel to a brand new place, actually crossing over the Aegean Sea into Greece, into Europe, and to bring the gospel to Philippi and to Thessalonica, to Athens, and to Corinth. So this, in Luke's mind, is a major shift in the book. And so that's why he gives us a progress report here in verse 5 before we move on into the next phase. But the next phase begins this way in verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And Asia would, of course, be Asia Minor. So the main city being Ephesus and then the the cities around it. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, which is far north. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. What you have here are some of the geographical places that Paul either went to or tried to go to with his ministry team. Uh, They tried to go east into Asia Minor and were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. They tried to go north into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they went as far west as they could to a seaport town on the Aegean Sea called the city of Troas. That was a place where you would cross over from in order to get into Europe. But the interesting thing to us, of course, is that in his desire to go east and then in his desire to go north, they were not permitted. And they were kept from their journey by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Jesus. And the question, of course, that we might ask is, how were they blocked by the Holy Spirit? And the truth is, the text does not say. We just don't know. Later, we'll see in just a moment that Paul receives a vision from the Lord telling him what to do next. So perhaps he received visions from the Lord telling him what not to do next as well when he tried to go north or tried to go into Asia Minor. It's also very possible that circumstances or discernment or even prophecy, we know that Silas was had the gift of prophecy, so perhaps That gift was exercised in their midst, and they received directions that way from the Spirit that they were not to go in these other directions. But irregardless, we realize here that the Holy Spirit is directing the affairs of our man. And so their 
at Troas, they'd gone as far as they could go without crossing over the Aegean Sea and going into Europe, which they had not yet touched with the gospel. And it says in verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this vision comes to Paul. And in the vision, he sees a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is the larger body mass or country that Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea were located in. So he receives this vision of this man from Macedonia and the Request is very simple. Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, this is exciting on a couple of different levels. First of all, it's exciting just on the Christian human basic level of seeing this man who is led and directed by God to a new people group and directed by God through circumstances and also through a vision. It's wonderful when the Holy Spirit directs your life in a special way. But beyond that, this is also a very exciting time or a very special time because this is actually an authentic turning point in the history of Western civilization, if you really think about it. Because Paul is going to cross over the waters and take the gospel into Europe. And Europe would be recipients in a widespread way in the years and centuries to come of the gospel message. And because the gospel saturated that Western society and the you know Western world, it greatly impacted the course of human history over the next couple thousand years. And so much of the, you know, progress or the human rights progress that we've made over the last couple thousand years, the arts, the education, technology, so much of that was impacted by this moment when Paul crossed over those waters and began to bring the gospel into that place where light was begun, going to begin to be seen and to be known and received there in that region. And, if, and I, I think that we are still feeling the ramifications of that gospel impact on that European soil, even now today, a couple thousand years later. Now, when Paul, verse 10, had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, you might notice there in verse 10, the first use of we and us in the book of Acts. And this is where this type of language begins. Now, the interesting thing is that, of course, you know, we are to understand this to be that Luke is speaking now of himself, that he has joined Paul's team there in Troas. And interestingly enough, this we kind of language is going to cease after the account that happens next in the city of Philippi. It won't be found in Thessalonica. It won't be found in Berea or 
Athens or Corinth. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul will return to Philippi and the we language will begin again. This, combined with the fact that the Philippi account here in the the rest of Acts 16 takes up a long space in the text, you know, causes me to think that Luke was left in Philippi by Paul and perhaps was a resident of Philippi himself. Some people even think that he went through his medical training there in Philippi. And so it might cause us to wonder if Luke himself is that man of Macedonia in Paul's vision. Now, Paul says that after they saw the vision, he concluded that God had called them. They concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So now we see that the Holy Spirit uh, has led them. The Spirit of Jesus has led them. And now they understand that God has called them. This is embryonic Trinitarian faith uh, on full display here in Acts chapter 16. So the gospel is going to be brought into Europe. Just a powerful moment. And perhaps a question that we should ask ourselves at this juncture in the book of Acts is to ask the question, am I able to be led by the Spirit through a vision, a dream, or a prophecy? You know, is that is that possible for me in my life? Or am I resistant to every element that is like that? Now, I mean, as a pastor, that's a scary question for me to ask in one sense, because I believe the word and biblical counsel often are neglected by God's people. And it's so important for us to saturate ourselves with God's word and to find the answers and the wisdom for life within God's word. It's also scary for me to ask if you're led by the Spirit or able to be led by the Spirit through a vision or a dream or a prophecy because I know how easy it is for us to replace the mission of God with our own mission. And so being led with a vision or dream or prophecy, I think, can sometimes simply be us trying to execute our own plans. But the reality is that for a person who loves the word, a person who's receiving biblical counsel, and a person who has adopted the mission of Christ here on earth, for a person like that, it really is important for us to say, can I be led by the Spirit through a vision or a dream or a prophecy? And Paul here at this moment is led in just that way. So, verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, which is an island in the Aegean Sea. It's got these a huge, almost 6,000-foot mountain on it. And the following day to Neapolis, which was a port city about 10 miles from Philippi. And from there, verse 12, to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. The way that Luke records this, it tells us that they had a rapid journey. The wind was with them. Later on in the book of Acts, to go the opposite direction will take them five days. This journey appears to take them two days. 
And they arrived in Philippi, which Luke tells us is a Roman colony. Uh, that means that it had, been, it had been taken for Rome, and the residents there were actually considered residents of Rome itself. They had what you would call the italic right, meaning that for people to attack them was tantamount to attacking Rome or Italian soil itself. So Luke calls it a leading city. It wasn't quite as prominent in Macedonia as Thessalonica or as Amphipolis, but Luke, you know, he was from there, so he's proud of his town. Now, a special church is going to develop here in Philippi, a church that had a beautiful partnership with Paul in his gospel work. So on the Sabbath, which was their style to preach to the Jew first and also to the Greek, so on the day that Jews would gather together the Sabbath to study scripture and to hear from God, uh, they went to look for the Jewish congregation. Now, if there were less than 10 Jewish men in a city, then they would not build a synagogue. And in lieu of a synagogue, they would find a place outside, usually near a river or an ocean, where they would gather together. And at that public place, any Jew that would come together, they would try to, you know, read the scripture or potentially if there was a traveling rabbi or teacher, they would hear from him. And so probably what you'd have there about a mile and a half out of town on the riverbank, you'd have a small group of Jews gathering together, hoping that a traveling teacher would come by. And I'm sure that Paul is willing to oblige them. Now, one verse 14 who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here we have the first convert in Europe, this woman named Lydia. Now, it's not that she's the only saved person in all of Europe at the time. I mean, Paul's ministry team is there. There were people, we would assume, from Rome who had uh, been there on the day of Pentecost, who had perhaps returned uh, back to their hometown. But this is Paul's first convert. Uh, himself uh, there in Europe. And and so we will remember Lydia fondly for all of history. She was a, a wealthy woman. She was a woman of trade. Uh, she was a seller of purple goods, which Thyatira was famous for down in Asia Minor, being a strong commercial center. And she'd since relocated or was traveling there in Philippi and, you know, was conducting her business. She heard the gospel message and she gives her life to Christ. So the first convert. And then using her wealth well, she invites Paul and his team to stay in her home. And as we were going to the place of prayer, verse 16, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So 
there they are ministering in Philippi for a season, and this slave girl is following them around. She has what Luke records as a spirit of divination. That's two Greek words that mean spirit and python. And uh, Apollo, the false god, was believed to be embodied by a python. And so perhaps that was the belief that she has that type of demon inside of her. She's under the influence of that type of demon. And so she, however, had linked herself up to some kind of demonic being. And she is going around saying these men are servants of the Most High God. So right message, but, you know, the wrong messenger. So Paul was greatly annoyed, and he commanded that this demon come out. After a while, he just couldn't handle it anymore, and he he rebuked the demon and set the girl free. But, verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So, a couple of comments. First of all, this girl, she was actually owned by other human beings. And her owners, their desire for profit, I think in a sense you could say, sent them to hell. Uh, What they are doing is obviously of the gravest kinds of evil. For a human being to be owned and trafficked in this kind of way is just absolutely demonic. And maybe they had drugged her, maybe they had manipulated her, but... They realize that their profit is going to be done, and so they tell the local authorities, look, they're telling us to do things that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. In other words, this is an illegal religion for Romans to be involved in. And as a Roman colony, they wanted to follow all of the Roman rules. And so if there was a religio illicita or an illegal religion, if that was happening in their colony, they had to deal with it swiftly. So they took these Jewish men, you can hear the anti-Semitism in the way that they spoke, and they beat them with rods and put them into the inner dungeon. And about midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So Paul and Silas, not Luke or Timothy because they had Gentile roots, but Paul and Silas, the Jews, there they are in stocks in the middle of the night down in the dungeon and they are shockingly praying and singing hymns to God. What depth of joy these men had. There was not bitterness, but in their pain and in their mission, they were fellowshipping with Jesus. And they just began to understand, I think, that as they suffered, they were partaking of the sufferings of Christ, that there was a new and fresh relationship with Jesus and experience for them that they could not experience when in ease. And so they just sang to the Lord. 
man, you might be in a dark place. And for you, you might need to sing yourself out of that darkness. Sing yourself out of that depression. Not just any old song, but the praises of God. When the jailer woke, verse 27, and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Probably ex-military, and this is what you would do. It would be the honorable thing in that culture to do. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul, verse 28, cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that very same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his his entire household that he had believed in God. So he technically asked the wrong question, but Paul paid no mind. What must I do to be saved? Well, nothing. You can do nothing to be saved, but you do need to believe. That's what you need to do is to simply have faith in the Lord Jesus. And, And Paul expounded on that by speaking the word of the Lord to him. And eventually, the jailer and his whole household, all who were of believing age, they also believed and were baptized that very night. So now we have small little group of believers there in Philippi. Lydia, the slave girl, we assume, who's been now delivered from her demonic possession, and now the Philippian jailer and his family. But when it was day, verse 35, the magistrate sent to the police saying, let those men go. So probably they thought to themselves that a beating and a night in the city jail would suffice as a lesson for Paul and Silas. And the jailer, verse 36, reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. And have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Paul was a Roman citizen. And according to Roman law, a Roman citizen could travel anywhere within Roman territory and be under the protection of Rome. But they had not acted out on that Roman protection here in a Roman colony. The police, verse 38, reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So Paul, I think, did a solid for this young church by helping the local Roman authorities to feel as if they owed that infantile church They owed them a little bit for the way that they treated Paul and the way that they treated Silas. But a powerful move of God in bringing the gospel into a new and fresh territory and into European soil. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.